Welcome to Lunch with Tech Leaders, where we have engaging conversations about software development and cloud engineering with industry leaders and subject matter experts. These episodes are created by the Great Lakes Tech Leaders, an online community of technology practitioners. Please come join the conversation by visiting gltl.rbn.ai. Again, that's gltl.rbn.ai. Now strap in, because we're deploying to production in three, two, one. All right, welcome to the latest episode of Lunch with Tech Leaders. My name is Ray Welker. Uh, and I'll be your host today. Joining me is our software and data consultant, Tom Kowalski. Say hello. Hi. Howdy, howdy. And last but not least, we have our technology consultant, Joel Coleman. Hey there, Ray. Thanks for having me. Uh, just a quick note, if any of the listeners have any questions or want a little bit of the, a topic to be covered, go ahead and throw it right there in the uh, chat, and I'll be sure to interject and make sure we get it covered. So thank you so much. And Tom, do you want to give our, our guest an introduction as well? Yeah, yeah. So today, you know, talking a little bit about the infrastructure's code and, and the tools. And to do that, we brought on Tom, Tommy, Francis. I'm Tommy. Uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Tommy Francis, or Tom Francis, but today Tommy Francis. Um, uh, I, I'm a cloud architect, solutions architect, uh, currently at SmallCDR, um, which is a, a health data fabric company. Um, but my my passion is very been very much been around automating infrastructure for a number of years. So in, I started off my career as a developer support for Microsoft in the UK, way back in the 90s. I transitioned to like an infrastructure role because I was interested in stuff. I, I'm very I like to learn. I'm interested in things, right? And then when the whole cloud and infrastructure as code type technology started coming around, then that felt like the, the perfect meld of those old dusty developer skills and uh, my my interest in infrastructure. So since then, I've been very, um, very keen to learn and use infrastructure as code where, where possible and where appropriate. Awesome. Yeah. I kind of have the same story too, right? Starting off more as a developer and then slowly gravitating more to infrastructure. So yeah, infrastructure as code was just, you know, natural fit and it just made a lot of sense. Yeah. Same with like serverless in the same sense. It was like, yes, this is, uh, this is where we should be going. Yeah. You have a lot of experience, uh, Tom, Tom K with, with serverless, right? Serverless framework. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I mean, yeah, today we're going to be covering infrastructure as code as a whole. Um, wanted to touch on a few of the tools there. Uh, CloudFormation, Terraform, AWS CDK, Serverless Framework. Uh, we wanted to touch on Helm as well for Kubernetes. Uh, I know I know our guest here, he has um, quite a bit of experience when it comes to Helm and wanted to touch on that here. So we got a packed agenda today. So grab your lunch, maybe even a notepad and buckle up. So, so cloud formation, you know, I, I feel like that's kind of a natural starting point, you know, may, maybe one of the oldest, uh, infrastructure code tools specifically, you know, for AWS. Try, try to introduce things like chef and Ansible. Um, but the enterprise, um, areas tend to, sometimes they tend to a little bit, tend to be a little bit hesitant to, 
take on some of these automations. So it wasn't until we gave, we started uh, moving into the AWS cloud that we that I started getting my hands dirty with cloud formation. So yeah, that was my start as well. What do you, what do you think really um, started to maybe shift the focus uh, in, in, in maybe in your experience, Tommy, for uh, the use of infrastructure as code? Um, was did, did you have to present any sort of like maybe business use case or was it maybe adopted at a higher level originally? So we had to adopt this in a very organic manner. And I, I, I think I just made that term up. But what I mean by that is I, I initially, um, again, going back to the, the earlier automation. So with, with Chef, I, I created this um, Chef recipe that would build out our web farm completely, including all of the virtual hosts for the different business units. And uh, it, it, was, it was neat. It seemed like magic at the time, but couldn't get any buy-in because it needed root access and that's a big no-no. So it was like just myself trying to bring these efficiencies. So that, that didn't really work. What really changed that was um, our introduction to um, like DevOps. So we, we started, some of the business teams wanted to follow an agile approach and use Jira. So we went down that path of installing that and with Fanboo as well. And I started automating a lot of the manual processes we did using that. And that started getting the visibility that yes, automated processes um, can, well, they do save time, they're repeatable and, and they are actually reliable despite the fears of, that people have of running these um, code-based things for tasks that were typically manual. And it, it became clear after a while the, the code makes less mistakes than the fingers, right? So if you're repeating a task endlessly, um, up, like doing a deployment or, or whatever it is, deployment to Tomcat or WebLogic, fingers make mistakes. Code can make mistakes as well, but it's a mistake that's made once when you're coding it. You may find that mistake and then that mistake isn't going to happen again, right? So you get that repeatability. Um, so there is that curve of where the organization has to gain confidence that um, infrastructure as code is is a suitable um, suitable technology to use. Um, but this was earlier in infrastructure as code days, though now it's a buzzword, so everyone's like, yes, we have to have it. But back then, we had to go through this, like trying to get the organization to, to get some buy-in um, with, without having any uh, external experts come in because if we had access to, um, I don't know, some large uh, external entity that would say, this is how you do it, then the business would probably jump on that. But when it's an internal person who's passionate about following these new um, technologies uh, and the current, current efficient ways of doing things, that, that can be a bit harder to get the buy-in on that. So you've got to really like show it in use, which... You can't automate everything at once either. So you've got to like find the tiny building blocks, show that automation works and build the confidence. And that ultimately you get to the point where yeah, they realize um, we should be doing this to as much as we can. I think you brought up a really fascinating point in that, um, yeah, maybe whenever you're trying to drive change internally, it can be a little more difficult to present the case than if you had maybe an outside company saying you needed to use, you know, XYZ tool. Um, I, I guess kind of like, yeah, that's regardless of the tool you choose, the same concepts still apply. So like we talked about 
four four different tools um essentially we wanted to maybe cover but i'd say regardless of the tool that you use still all of these best practices play um you know it's 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 kind of a security um source controlled related way of configuring infrastructure uh it can be immutable um you know you're perhaps you're um writing your 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 templates once or your code once and you can apply it to various um you know accounts or you know perhaps even uh, you know multi-cloud cloud strategy um i kind of wanted to touch on like yeah cloud formation specifically i guess you know that would be if, if we're you know we're talking about aws native services itself but so many of these other tools branch out outside of aws um so like, I guess in your case, Tommy, um, were you guys AWS centric to begin with, or did you kind of have a local and or hybrid approach? Um, I guess AWS kind of landed in my plate personally. So I was, I had been interested in AWS for years, but I hadn't done more than spun up an EC2 instance. I thought that was it, right? I was like, oh, you can spin up an instance. Isn't that cool? Um, then we actually acquired a company that, um, was they, they were fully fully utilizing AWS, so I took that as a as a initiative point to like self study AWS more. I did the A Cloud Guru courses myself, and my head exploded with glee because it's just wow, it's so much more than just spinning up servers when you need them, as we all know. Um, from from there on, we became an AWS shop because because of that acquisition. So I heavily involved myself with um that team that came in and and so that part of the business was definitely aws once we started getting some basic aws knowledge i've done my cloud formation by that point um we started i hadn't done sorry that was incorrect once we'd got the um we'd onboarded the company we got involved with them we started looking at moving other workloads to AWS, and that's where I started my um, cloud formation journey. Was we, we had to um, I forget now it was a while ago, but had to do some uh, fairly complicated cloud formation. Um, it was actually yeah, it was we we were installing a proprietary application, and they they the 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 ask was to put it in AWS. Um, so this was like Windows. Uh, application running on Windows, it's kind of a manual install. But I, I had my, I, I have a really strong conviction for automating things. Um, I really want to get away from manually doing things wherever possible. So typically, installing this application on Windows is a very manual task. But I, I, I took, I took it on myself to automate it, um, primarily using automation. So I, I had to do um, some fairly complicated. Uh, in there, uh, I think I think it was called intrinsic functions. I can't remember. It's been a while ago since I've actually had my hands dirty directly in CloudFormation. But um, it it that was another confidence builder, right, for the organization. The effort up front to automate that was it was there was a lot of effort. But then at the end of that, we could like boom, 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 throw out these environments exactly the same repeatedly. And then they really saw the value in that because typically before that, even with the cloud, to rebuild that would have been two or three weeks. Now, it, after this, I think it was 45 minutes to install a complete environment. So the, the value of IAC really, really took a hold there. 
So was that organization that you acquired, were they already using cloud formation or did you just start, you know, taking it upon yourself when you started to migrate workloads over to start learning cloud formation? And when was it? They, yeah, they were using cloud formation for their existing workloads. They had a ECS based workload. Okay. Um, yeah. And I, I didn't, at that point, I didn't know about Terraform. So I, I, I learned about the native tools that were available. This was before we had CDK. I think, um, Sam was just coming around the corner. Okay. Service. Yeah. Um, maybe CDK was a thing, but it wasn't a well-known thing yet. Yeah. Um, so I, I had to get right into those, into the cloud formation, which, and there was some, uh, I think I had cloud formation that would, so there's always a problem. Uh, you know what? I don't want to digress. I was going to talk about provisioning the database and the users inside the database and how I did that in cloud formation. But uh, if you want to get on there, I can, but otherwise, um, it's a bit of a deep rabbit hole. And it's well, what, what directly related to, so you started off with cloud formation. What brought you yeah. to the other tools? And you started mentioning what, you know, what gravitated, which tools and what did you gravitate towards at line? Right. So at a previous organization, um, we, our, our AWS journey started with um, the acquisition. And at the same time, around the same time, we started an, um, uh, um, a project, an endeavor, I forget the word, there's a word for it, to um, create some new AWS accounts for other parts of the business, for the mostly for the, the, the um, data lake type stuff. So there was this data lake initiative. Initiative is the word I was looking for. It was a data lake initiative and we got a third party vendor in to, to help us build out the infrastructure for that. They did use code for the infrastructure, but they basically had a bunch of Python scripts running Goto directly. So that was just, um, uh, imperative implementation of the AWS API. There wasn't any infrastructure as code so much. It's just scripting manual processes. Um, that persistent state. Um, nothing like that. No idem, no idem, in Yeah. Uh, nothing like that. So it, it was like more like the traditional scripts we were running for years on other processes. Very like the the old mentality of of how to um, code infrastructure. Um, after disagreements, I guess we actually got directly involved with AWS and and another a different company that was working with them, another provider, and we had a great relationship with them. And then we built our first landing zone. And that was the first one. Yeah. That they, when they came in, there was this big discussion of cloud formation versus Terraform. And I, I remember being there for the meeting and, and there was the discussions of like, well, cloud formation is, um, obviously AWS specific, right. And Terraform, the, the, the message that trickles up the organization hierarchy is that it's multi-cloud. Now, as sure, the language construct, they, they, if you learn it on AWS, that's going to work anywhere. So once you learn HCL, you've learned HCL, except for the new stuff they add as it, as it, as it develops. But the act, if you write stuff in Terraform for AWS, that there's no, 
I, I guess you could write it in a way that it's multi-cloud, but typically if you write resources that are, if you write a Terraform project that's just for AWS, you're not going to be able to pick that up and put it on a multi-cloud because all of the <laughs> providers, yeah. resources, it's for AWS. So yeah, it's the technology is multi-cloud, but nothing you write is necessarily multi-cloud. I think the message that the management had was that like, well, no, it's multi-cloud. So we do it once and it's usable everywhere. So we ended up going with Terraform. For me, I had got my hands dirty with CloudFormation. This was a great experience to realistically get my hands dirty with uh, Terraform as well. So we went down that one. So then on on take three for our second landing zone, third landing zone, um, we actually went to Control Tower, which is all powered by CloudFormation again under the hood. So we we were a bit of a mix, but the the main push to go to Terraform was for the multi-cloud and it was a push from above. Yeah. So did you use any... Go ahead, Duff. Sorry, I keep going, but yeah. So did you use CDK at all or any other tools or did you just... all Everything from then on was was Terraform? I, I have played with CDK, but I haven't used CDK in any professional environment yet, unfortunately. Um, I do love the look of it because so the whole imperative versus declarative thing is it's very interesting right so yeah i've got the the, the lights of cloud formation and terraform which are basically um declarative you're defining the state you want but sometimes the state you want is different in one environment to the other and that's that's tricky to express in a declarative language right so they've they've added the constructs like they're very clunky. They're not like a regular language. They so you've got the looping, you've got the 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 the, the if logic, but it's it's not easy to use, right? Like it like it is with a regular um, imperative language. So that's why I, I I think something like CDK, I'm really excited to actually be able to use it properly because then if we're doing um, these components in dev and a slight difference in prod, then you can do that using it imperative language which is far easier to do and also read some of these some of these um i don't want to say the word hacks but some of these methods they've got the uh imperative constructs into these declarative languages they mm -hmm. they work but they're not the nicest to read and they're not the nicest to use so that's that's my personal feeling on it so i like i, I understand why we need declarative constructs for for infrastructure as code. So you've got the reconciliation loops and this this defines the state. But creating that defined state is where things like CDK and and imperative languages are really powerful. So you use the imperative language to generate your declarative definition. Have you leveraged CDK for Terraform? I don't know if it's generally available. I know it's I don't know if it's out of beta yet or no. Okay. Yeah, I think the thing with like CDK is that, um, you know, it, it's like you work with constructs, which are, you know, further abstracting the underlying cloud formation away from, say, the developer, the one writing the infrastructure's code. So it's like you have your low level constructs, which are just CD, CFN resources. Um, like I could clearly define an IAM role, for example, uh, that I want to attach to my Lambda for my, you know, my Lambda executor. Um, 
but I mean, CDK also has like high level constructs, which are more of a CDK library, um, where I can tell it specifically within like one call of a, um, of one of the constructs, I want to create a, uh, Fargate load balanced, um, ECS task definition. And that looks like eight lines of code, <laughs> uh, where it gives me my application load balancer. It sets up the security groups, the underlying, uh, ECS, uh, uh, service, it's task definition. Uh, you can expand upon that, but like, it, it just creates so many of these resources and it's just so powerful. Um, there's little gotchas with it though, that like, you know, you want to, I want to, I want to dive into it, maybe modify the underlying security group or something like that, where, um, I don't know. It's, it, it is, it's interesting. It, it, it's kind of putting more of the infrastructure in the hands of developers is the way I feel with, um, with CDK. De definitely a fan of it. That's, I was actually going to ask. So when you, when you, you, you get this advantage of these high level constructs, which build a whole bunch of infrastructure for you. Do you have the flexibility to change that or is it kind of opinionated and set in stone? Yes, you, you typically do. Uh, you can, you can typically dive into the underlying resources and, uh, I've seen this most, um, visibly with TypeScript, uh, mostly because I can run in VS code. I can do a debugger. Uh, I can, I can then attach to the underlying object and see what aspects are a part of that object. Um, so I could see that, like, perhaps I'm creating a security group. So I could call, like, this dot node dot security group and modify the underlying, like, inbound and egress rules um, if, if needed. Um, I, I have found some difficulties with doing that, and sometimes I do kind of get pigeonholed in. So I end up building out, like, that. that's a prime example, was, like, a far, or a ECS Fargate, you know, load balance test definition, I believe is the construct. Um, I might be butchering that a little bit, but, uh, those are ones I typically build out separate resources for because of that underlying issues that sometimes I think some resources are inaccessible to modify. So that, that's interesting. Um, one thing that's similar in a way to CDK in so far as having those high level constructs, um, I've been using there's lots of modules out there for Terraform, right? That will create all those dependent resources. So they, they do that high level abstraction. One that I've used, um, started using a, a bit is the, uh, the Amazon EKS blueprints for Terraform. So they have a lot of good patterns and, and pre ready to go, um, modules. You basically say, give me an EKS cluster and they're doing all of the, yeah, CryptoCT, ETCD do your ingress, egress, all of the, the default modules, and it's all done for you rather than you having to go in and, and define each thing. So the similar idea that you've got those high-level um, constructs and easy-to-consume fashion. So do those yeah. Terraform modules allow you to easily, do they have like the escape patches, if you will, right? So if you do need to modify some of those lower-level pieces, is that easy to do? Or In my experience, I've seen that they are. Oh, it depends. There it is. The classic yeah. architecture line. This was my dead favorite dead. mug. This is my favorite mug when I was back when I used to work in the office and we had meetings. It's like it depends. Anyway, yep. yeah, it depends. It it depends on how the module was written, right? So if they've allowed you to part, if they've like created pass throughs for various um resource 
parameters, then sure you can you can set that in your high level construct and it'll it'll filter through. But um, sometimes they don't, and then you're kind of stuck. Um, you can either like uh, create an issue for them to add that feature, or contribute, or or fork it and do it yourself, or do away from that part of the module and re-implement that yourself. There's there's options. Typically, I've to, to date, I found that certainly for those particular ones, the, the Amazon EKS blueprints, they, they've been pretty solid and flexible. Yeah, I've seen specifically with some of the Cloud Posse ones, I've, I've certainly had to go ahead and write my own modules because I was unable to configure certain aspects of theirs. It's like, yeah, I could have forked it, but then at that point, I need to change one thing and it's going to be a fork that's not maintained. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And that was more of a yeah related thing that was outside quite, of the quite often. Quite often, if 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 the particular module you are using is well written, if you're finding um, some deficiency, sometimes it's because there's maybe a different way you should be trying to implement your your project. Right? Sometimes people perceive um, a deficiency in some upstream standardized thing, and really you're doing it wrong. So do it yeah. right, and it's, it'll work perfectly. So. And I think trying to force your preconceived way of doing it and then resulting in having other having to fork or clone code bases, which you then have to maintain, that's going to be way more work than just adjusting your approach using the accepted standard way and being able to use like fully um, maintained packages. Yeah, that is that is great advice. I'd just like to reiterate that. Right. If you find yourself like, oh, this is missing, right? Like an offering from a vendor or a package. It's like, oh, if they just did this, it's good to just take that step back. You know, like, well, why aren't they doing it, right? It's usually, okay, you don't you don't need to. There's a better way. Yeah, I really like that advice. And, and sometimes there's a legitimate hole, right? And, and it needs to yeah. be fixed. I mean, I'm not saying that isn't the case, but a lot of the time you, you've got yeah. to have that ability to like be introspective, look at what you're your solution is and and be willing to adjust it and 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 learn new things i mean this whole industry is a, it feels like it's a learning playground for, for those who love to learn but there's, there's always something new to learn and quite often learning something an alternative or a new approach will solve a lot of problems because you're not you're probably not the first person to have the, some particular problem you're trying to solve certainly I, I think Joe Coleman jo joined us. I think he might have a question. Yeah, I just uh, didn't want to interrupt you guys. You had a good flow going. But, um, yeah, we got a question here in the chat. Um, how are organizations using infrastructure as code where they don't have public cloud? And does that uh, not change their infrastructure setup often? Um, this is an example, um, you know, they might spin up new applications once every, you know, in six months. So. I think that that's interesting. It, I think it depends. It's like what if you're not in a public cloud? Is there an API that allows you to provision those resources? Uh, I, I'm not too familiar of, of of frameworks outside of public clouds. I don't know if you all have. I mean, you can use yeah, warehouse you like or... you could use the serv serverless um, SAM. I believe it's called for AWS. So if you're like looking to get into the cloud, you could still write infrastructure as code and you can um, kind of test your infrastructure, such as like serverless components, uh, you know, Lambda, API Gateway, 
Um, you can do like, I, I believe it's like Sam local is the command that you can run. Um, and it's kind of like mock endpoint services for your, uh, for your infrastructure's code. So, I mean, it could be maybe used as like a proof of concept of, you know, do my, you know, are, are my, does my API gateway work if I'm like looking to move to AWS? But, but yeah, I think you bring up a good point there, Tom is like, is, is there, you know, APIs for whatever you want to, you know, write for uh, T Terraform might be something that I guess, cause it's, it's, there's like a thousand providers. Uh, perhaps you can use Terraform if you're not on like maybe one of the public clouds or something. Uh, yeah. I, I guess it I have seen, I, yeah, I have seen, um, I know that in the early days when it was all VMware, there were definitely um, APIs available. So if internally you could you could leverage the APIs. When I last dealt with that, there weren't any like common platforms for doing that. So it'd be like someone internally scripts that API. So that's not very um, not very matured, right? So, but I, yeah, I do believe Terraform has a lot of providers for like you've got your providers for your Cisco switches and f5 load balancers you've been where so yeah not necessarily just looking at um constructs that we know about in the cloud like the the, the cloud supported products like api gateway but you can codify the physical devices you have on premises and then there's also taking cloud technologies or typically cloud-based technologies through your on-premises data center like one example of that being like OpenShift, right so you can um, for those who are aware, OpenShift is basically uh, another variation on Kubernetes, and it's designed that you can um, just install it in your on-premises, and it's like your on-premises cloud. And you'll have all the same constructs. So yeah, there, there are ways to do infrastructure as code on-premises, but it's not as standardized as in the cloud. Right, Tom. And, and also, it's there's not as much benefit, like you say, you know, the infrastructure isn't changing as much. You know, when you go to the cloud, it opens up so many more possibilities that you didn't have when you're, you know, on-prem, such as DR. So you can easily replicate that production environment in another region, which, you know, it's hard to do. You could have it, you know, on-prem in, in another location. Yeah. And and also, you know, just within the same region, not even DR, if you want to, you know, test different changes to a production environment, you know, the infrastructure as code allows you to spin up exactly like production for an hour, run tests. But that's really hard to do in uh, in an on-prem environment where your resources are very limited, right? To in the scope of what you're using it for in, in production, where you can't just double your capacity in an hour and then yeah. you know take it down. So there's a little less benefit, I would say, when you're not in a cloud. Yeah, I, I think that really touches on one of the main benefits, well, one of the major benefits of the cloud is that scalability, right? You, you can scale down, down to zero and not pay for it. You could scale up to a thousand instances just as you need it. If Now, depending on the size of your company, that's not feasible, right? If you've got a thousand instances, sure, you can scale up to a thousand instances, but you can't scale to zero. You're always going to be paying for those servers. So if you're a big enough company and you've got enough spare compute, then yeah, you can, you can use some kind of on-premises cloud to help um, share that around. But for the, for the smaller companies, you need to provision for your maximum, which is what we're getting away from um, with the cloud. So you lose that benefit. Sometimes you have to be on-prem. I know we are kind of getting close, but I, I kind of wanted to touch right. on, you, you mentioned Kubernetes, Tom, Tommy. Yeah. Um, I mean, 
well, I think we we have an internal joke that like Kubernetes is a cloud within a cloud often, but like you could certainly <laughs> yeah. you could run Kubernetes locally um, if you really want to provision your own cluster. And I mean, you you could you could use things like Helm then in that that case, right, Tommy? Um, yeah. And yep. that would allow for you to configure your pods. Yep. So yeah, I guess we didn't get a chance to talk about Helm at all. So after that, um, after we got that third attempt at the landing zone, the, the vendor that we worked with actually uh, suggested we go the Kubernetes path. So I was like, oh, it's just an orchestration engine. And then I started learning about Kubernetes and it's just an orchestration engine is not the right thing to say. It's a cloud, it's a cloud, right? It's everything. Yeah. And go, going into that journey of learning Kubernetes was, it was heavy. And, and to be honest, most of my focus since then the last few years has been more on the Kubernetes side than specifically playing with like directly on a on AWS. Um, so yeah, Helm is definitely uh, one of the ways to um, deploy things on Kubernetes. There's there's three main ways, right? You can deploy the manifests directly. So every um, every component in Kubernetes. Every application component in Kubernetes has a manifest that defines it. Um, so you could define them manually, but then editing them is a nightmare. So we use templating engines. Helm is a templating engine. So, and, and then we've also got um, things like customize. Um, and I, I feel like Helm customize and that kind of stuff is probably a discussion in its own right as well. But certainly Helm um, is, is one of the good options for deploying your application in a um, in a consistent way on Kubernetes. At, um, a high, at a high level, how do you compare it, right? I, I haven't used how much uh, in, in Kubernetes in that regard. How do you compare it to like a traditional cloud formation? Like I know like some people say it's more of like package manager, right? So is it like your, you know, package.json file, like NPM, or is it, you know, or is it more like traditional infrastructure as code? It can be a bit of a, it depends. It, it's yeah. a mix. So there's, in, in the Helm charts that I've been working on, there, there's definitely two sides to it, right? So that you've definitely got the infrastructure side. So you've got like ingress objects, service objects, um, persistent storage, and the pods themselves. These are all, this is all infrastructure at the end of the day, right? This is getting getting packets to your application and back out like that's infrastructure but then you can also configure the application itself like you might pass in configuration files for your application and that's going to be a different configuration file or environment variables however you're passing the configuration in that's going to be different on different environments so you it needs to have some control over that as well so there's it's both so yes would, would you use CloudFormation with helm or does it no I think you could in a way. I mean, CloudFormation could be used for creating the cluster, right? Yeah, I I haven't thought about it before, to be honest. Because um, at the end of the day, when you are deploying Kubernetes resources, you are now talking, that whatever tool you're using to deploy it is talking to the control plane of Kubernetes. So whereas with your CloudFormation, it's talking to the AWS control plane, the AWS API. At some point, your 
um, AWS, uh, your EKS cluster is up and it's ready to start deploying things. To deploy things on there, you're no longer talking to the AWS uh, control plane API. You're talking to your cluster's control plane and you're saying deploy this pod. Um, so I don't know if CloudFormation natively has any constructs to um, allow you to to allow the CloudFormation service to talk to your to your EKS control plane. I, maybe it does. I just don't, haven't looked to that honestly. But you could certainly do something like create a Lambda function in CloudFormation, and that Lambda function would have the tools on it, or it, it could do what's needed to provision that into um, Kubernetes. Or what you we're more typically moving towards now is more of the GitOps type workflow where you have something running that does that consolidation, uh, the cons consolidation loop. So you might have your Helm, uh, Helm charts and stuff in a repository, and then something's like applying that to the uh, to the cluster. So an example of that is things like Argo CD and and, and Flux. So they're they're basically using that reconciliation loop to take your um, Kubernetes manifests from your repository and applying them to the server. So that's just happening automatically. So CloudFormation, I don't know how, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to be looking at that. You can trust me. I love to learn. So I'm going to be like, I'm curious now. So I'm going to go uh, research that. But it, interestingly, there's, we talked about using Helm from CloudFormation or, or deploying Kubernetes things from CloudFormation, but there's actually an interesting thing um, that I've started looking at goes the other way. So right now, you might, let's say we deploy our application with Helm. And let's say your application needs a date, an RDS instance, uh, Route 53 DNS entry, uh, uh, um, and some other AWS managed service resources. Now, there's things like um, Crossplane. So Crossplane is something, it's an operator, essentially. It runs inside your Kubernetes cluster. So now, in your Helm chart or your Kubernetes manifest, you define that I want a Route 53 uh, DNS entry in your Helm chart, and then Crossplane will go out and provision that infrastructure for you. So now we're doing everything from Kubernetes, if you like. So that's another, actually, it wasn't on the list of things to talk about, but it's another interesting um, infrastructure as code option, because you're still defining your cloud infrastructure from code, but now it's coming from, like, it's packaged with the application code. Or with the app, when I say application code, I mean, like, the Helm chart, so how to deploy the application in Kubernetes. So yeah. there's more new things. Yeah, that that's where I always get hung up. Like you said, you could do it different ways. And that's, you know, I, I work with a lot of different customers and some have it set up where, yeah, it's uh, Kubernetes is controlling the load balancer settings and things like that. And it's it's hard to tell which where things are being controlled and, and what's going on. Because, yeah, there are so many options, but yeah. And, and that's the thing about this industry right now is there's so many different dots that can be joined in different ways. And having that picture of available options in your head, um, that, that can be challenging. Right? It can be quite enjoyable if you've got the right kind of head. Um, I certainly enjoy that. Look at all the different options and then think, well, if this one actually makes more sense, let's go that route. Um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting space and very getting getting more complicated. But sometimes that complexity helps us build in simplicity for the user. Like the user could be a developer, right? or or whatever but sometimes 
all this complexity behind the scenes, like Kubernetes is complicated, but it makes deploying easy. So that's, I, I could waffle on about this stuff all day long as well. So I'll, uh, yeah, I'll stop. Same here. No worries. I mean, really, I really appreciate your insight into, you know, everything you provided here today. Um, we are at time. So I want to take an opportunity to thank all of our listeners in today's, you know, for tuning in today for our episode of Lunch with Tech Leaders. Uh, we hope you found the conversation informative and valuable. And we'd love to get have you join us again next week where Jason Brown is going to continue his series on serverless architecture and will be expanding upon event-driven architecture. As always, the episode will feature expert guests and interactive conversation, so be sure to tune in.